optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same time. What if I get the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, my frisky little kittens. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where I interview and deconstruct world-class performers of all types, ranging from chess prodigies to actors like Arnold Schwarzenegger to people in the military to people in sports, and including Peter Diamandis. Uh, Peter had his first debut a while back on this podcast. It was a huge hit with Tony Robbins. Then he did a separate standalone interview with me, and that was titled How to Think Like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. That was a huge hit, and he's come back to answer your top questions, which you submitted and voted up. Who is Peter? Well, Dr. Peter Diamandis has been named one of, quote, the world's 50 greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. His accomplishments are far too many to list, and uh, it would bore you. It wouldn't bore you. It would actually be fascinating. It would be super long, but here's a taste. So Peter is chairman and CEO of the XPRIZE Foundation. He is also the co-founder, along with Craig Venter and Bob Hariri, of Human Longevity, Inc., HLI, and co-founder of Planetary Resources, a company designing spacecraft to mine asteroids for precious materials 
And that's serious. That's not a joke. His latest book, Bold, has endorsements from people like Bill Clinton, Eric Schmidt, and Ray Kurzweil. Peter knows how to think and play big, and he can show you how to do the same thing, step by step. This episode answers the top 10 most popular questions you all had for Peter, including things like, how do we disrupt the education system? How do your first 10 minutes after you open your eyes in the morning look Do you have a morning routine? What are some unrealistic goals you think entire nations could aspire to solve? And it goes on and on. These questions are actually really, really good. And I'm excited for you to hear Peter's answers. So without further ado, please enjoy yet another with Peter Diamandis. Hi, this is Peter Diamandis, and it's a pleasure for me to be back to answer these questions for Tim Ferriss' podcast. Uh, Finn in England asks a question. Uh, how do we disrupt our education system? So, Finn, uh, first of all, education's got a couple different parts. There's the part of socialization, of getting to know kids, getting to know people, how to be a good citizen, how to interact with people socially. Then there's the part about learning. And the challenge with our education system, and you know this, we all know this, is it is 150 or 200 years old, and it just sucks. Um, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, in any classroom, half the class is bored. The other half of the class is lost. And even the best teachers can only teach to the median. And as classroom sizes grow, our ability to really provide personalized educations just isn't happening. Uh, so for me, the ability to scale is the use of technology. I always ask the question, how do you dematerialize, demonetize, and democratize uh, different systems. And in the case of education, what I believe is going to happen is that we're going to develop artificial intelligence systems, AIs, uh, that are using the very best teaching techniques. That basically an AI can understand a, a child's language abilities, their experience, uh, their cognitive capabilities, where they've grown up, even know what their experiences are through the days and give that individual an education that is so personalized uh, and so perfect for their needs in that moment that you couldn't buy it. And the beautiful thing about computers and AI is that they can scale uh, at minimal incremental cost. So you can imagine a world in the future in which the son or daughter of a billionaire or the son or daughter of a poor uh, uh, African villager have equal access to the best education. And we're seeing that today in knowledge, right? Because Larry Page on Google has access to the same knowledge and information that the poorest person on Google has. It's a flattening of this capability. So AI for me is the answer to global, dematerialized, demonetized, and democratized education. We have to separate learning things from actually socialization and being inspired and so forth. I think humans are going to be part of that, always will be. But AI is going to be the way that I learn something, uh, where an AI can really deliver the information in a way that's compelling and meaningful. In fact, we're going to have a situation where that AI may be watching my pupillary dilation or how I tilt my head or asking me questions to really understand, did I understand that concept or was I just sort of faking it by nodding my head? I mean, how many times are you speaking to someone they're trying to teach you something? And you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And really in the back of your mind, you're going, I have no idea what this person just said. Well, I think education 
driven by neuroscience and by artificial intelligence will know that you didn't get it, will back up to the point you lost the idea and then bring you step by step so you really do learn these things. Uh, I think we're going to really transform education very quickly uh, and it's a huge and critically important uh, part of our society. So as the father of two four-year-olds, I am uh, personally passionate and excited about solving that challenge. HGH asks the questions, what's your first 10 minutes in the morning look like? Uh, what do you do after you open your eyes? What's your morning routine? Well, HGH, uh, I get up uh, typically because I have two four-year-old boys jumping on the bed and asking me to watch cartoons with them. Uh, <laughs> that's not been the routine for years, but it is a routine at this very moment. And uh, the first thing I do is I scan my email. Um, turns out I personally read and return all of my email uh, I delete most of the things that are junk, uh, forward the things that I uh, can forward to individuals, and then save the things I'm going to respond to later in the day. So I'll do a quick email review from the night before. Uh, I will, if I, depending on where I am, uh, do a quick workout, typically 20 or 30 minute jog, uh, and then shower, change, and then go to XPRIZE if I'm in Los Angeles, go to Singularity University if I'm in the Bay Area. Uh, human longevity in San Diego or planetary resources up in Seattle. Uh, and my schedule is pretty much set. I've got an amazing team who manage me minute to minute. Um, if I'm in the midst of reading a book, uh, I'll be reading it on my, my phablet and, and basically squeezing in minutes, uh, where I can to be inspired by it. Uh, I've got my go-to team, uh, called my PhD ventures team, an amazing group, uh, who I work with and I'll be on the phone with them brainstorming when I have free time. But basically for me, it's a matter of juggling four ventures uh, through the day and uh, trying to uh, have fun. I mean, for me, the most important thing is having fun and being inspired uh, just to keep up the pace because it'll go uh, 24 seven if you let it. Anyway, uh, nothing, nothing routinely special. Oh, I will do a whole stretching routine in the shower if you wanted to know. Uh, Mike from Santa Cruz asks a fun question. What are some uh, unrealistic goals that you think an entire nation could aspire to? So, uh, Mike, I think that there are some some smaller nations uh, to take Holland or uh, UAE or Israel uh, that could actually aspire to some real transformational goals. And those goals might be something like going to a complete digital currency. Uh, Imagine if paper money was gotten rid of and everything was digital, the ability that you have all of a sudden to get rid of all, uh, all bribery, all, you know, a good amount of crime. Uh, The second part is going to a full digital uh, election where it's one digital vote per person going to a uh, pure democracy. I mean, that's a aspirational goal that I think a nation could go for. Uh, another is um, basically providing a, ma- a guaranteed minimum income for every person in the country. I think that's something that as we start to head towards uh, a world of AI and robotics beginning to displace jobs, which it will do, uh, these technologies will also help elevate jobs. Uh, elevate people to higher levels of uh, of jobs. I think a guaranteed minimum income provides people with a uh, a floor revenue, so that takes away that anxiety. 
But along that lines, uh, I think giving everybody access to a free education and free health care, but not just any free education, free health care. Imagine if the aspiration of the nation was access to the world's best education and the world's best health care. So what's that look like? Uh, for me, the world's best education is going to be sort of a digital version where the best teachers are digitized and I can learn anything I want and it's free from the best people on the planet delivered to me in a way that's compelling and it's personalized for me. Uh, it's sort of the, uh, the future of where we're going uh, with AI professors. Uh, on the healthcare side, I think nations will begin to sequence uh, their entire populace. So imagine if uh, in a population of a few million citizens, you were able to do a full genome sequence on every single individual. But besides their genome sequence, imagine if you did their microbiome, in other words, all the bacterial and viral and fungal uh, DNA that, that in, in, uh, inhabits us. We as humans are a collection of 10 trillion human cells and 100 trillion uh, members of the microbiome. Uh, and besides that, it might be your phenotypic data, your MRI data. All that data represents your physical state. Uh, but if we had that for every citizen of a country, we would be able to predict what that citizen is likely to come down with. Will they come down with heart disease? Uh, what type of cancers, neurodegenerative disease? And actually provide those people with preventative services before they come down with it. It's a way of dropping the healthcare costs, uh, uh, precipitously for a nation and providing people a healthier, longer life. So I think those are some really great moonshot goals that countries, in fact, can and will and should take. So Carlson BJJ from Lincoln, Nebraska, asked the question, what are some of the most exciting changes happening in healthcare, And what are the timetables for them to affect the general population? Uh, so Carlson, you may know I'm one of the co-founders um, of a company called Human Longevity Inc. with Craig Venter, who sequenced the first human genome, and Bob Hariri, uh, who's one of the pioneers of, uh, of stem cells, placental stem cells to be exact. And we've started a company called HLI that is the largest genome sequencing facility in the world. We've sequenced more human genomes at uh, this medical grade level than the entire world combined to date. Uh, and we're heading towards a world in which we're going to be sequencing millions of individuals, uh, not only the 3.2 billion letters from their mother and from their father, but your microbiome, getting your full digital MRI, your health records, all of this information compiled into an integrated health record per individual. Now, imagine millions of these integrated health records. And our next step is to data mine that information. So if you came to HLI, to our health nucleus, which is our, our sort of medical hub where we intake people join this, we fully are digitizing your body, your DNA, your microbiome, your, your brain structure, all of this, and goes into the database. And you're in this database now with millions of individuals, and your data – along with those individuals' data is mined to look at, look, everybody who had this genome sequence uh, had a high probability of living over 100. In fact, they had no probability of cancer, but they did have a probability of this kind of heart disease. And so we're able to you know, really mine the largest data mining uh, project in history, understanding the correlation between genome and outcome. Uh, so this is what's going on right now. It's going to transform all of healthcare. It's going to make healthcare predictive and preventative. Uh, the other side of the equation, what we're doing in HLI, which is part of what we're, we're talking about here, 
is actually the stem cell side of the company. Um, uh, one of our investors is a, com- a company called Celgene. It's a $100 billion company that's done a lot of work in stem cells. And our mission is to look at how do we rejuvenate your stem cell population because it, it appears to be that the stem cell are your rejuvenating engine of your body. So uh, if you have children or when you were a kid, you had stem cells coursing through your body and those stem cells are able to repair uh, any kind of damage to any kind of tissue or muscle or skin or connective tissue or whatever it is. But as we get older, our stem cell population does two things. One, it begins to dwindle and our stem cell reserves uh, get reduced. The second is our stem cells undergo these epigenetic changes, these mutations, uh, deletions, insertions, and our stem cells become less and less able to uh, repair our body's injured tissues. So uh, one of the ideas for Human Longevity, Inc. is can we in fact extract your stem cells, identify what epigenetic changes are taking place, repair your stem cells, proliferate them, provide them back to you, and restore your regenerative engine. So our mission is to extend the healthy human lifespan 30 to 40 years, to make 100 years old and you 60. And the goal is at 100 that you'll have the cognition, the aesthetic, and the mobility. You know, look good, think you know, think clearly, and, and, and be strong uh, at 100 that you did at 60. So I think this is where we're heading. I think the other big revolutions in healthcare are going to be uh, around making it uh, data-centric. We'll all be wearing biometric sensors on your Apple Watch, your Google Watch, whatever it might be, sensors that are in our clothing, sensors that we've swallowed, sensors that are under our skin, all of these things measuring constantly what we eat, what we breathe, our glucose levels, blood pressure, uh, looking in your blood for microRNAs. And it's effectively uh, a onboard sensor system like your car or your refrigerator or your airplane has that is constantly making sure everything's working well. Because right now, the way the healthcare system works is when you break down, when you end up with cancer, a heart attack, that's when you go. So it's like imagine an airplane in the sky that uh, only got serviced after the engines quit. You have a lot of lethal accidents. But today, we actually, in our airplanes, GE jet engines, for example, have hundreds of sensors monitoring every aspect of that jet engine. When anything goes out of a little bit of tune, what happens? That jet engine goes into immediate service before anything dangerous occurs. So we're heading that way. Where we're going to be monitoring your body and looking for your, you know anything that might be out of whack. Your check, your check engine light goes on and you get preventative service um, instead of uh, you know critical care service at the end. Uh, next question is from Mikey in Laguna Beach, California. Uh, Mikey asks, a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. How do you go about defining a problem or how do you ask better questions? So uh, that's, Mikey, a really important question for an entrepreneur. I think of problems as gold mines. And when I'm trying to help a Fortune 500 CEO uh, move his company forward, uh, my question to him is, you know, why don't you hire a bunch of 20-something-year-olds who have don't know about your business but can go and interview uh, your, your customers, your suppliers, uh, your employees, 
and ask the question, you know, what do you wish was different? What isn't working for you? Uh, if you can get a list of the problems that your business has or that you have in your life uh, or that you have um, in your products or services, really being able to define what people don't like, what's not working for people, uh, though that list is incredibly valuable uh, as targeting data for improving your business but also creating new businesses. Uh, you know, I like telling people that the world's biggest problems are the world's biggest business opportunities. You want to become a billionaire, help a billion people. So defining a problem is critically important. Now, the question is, can you define the problem yourself or are you blind to it? And that's a challenge, right? We don't know how to think any other way than the way we do think. So defining a problem sometimes comes best in conversation or by asking other people to come in uh, look at what's going on, evaluate, and generate a list of problems, and then review it with them and see, oh, well, you didn't understand that, or maybe they did and you didn't. So I agree with you. Um, a problem is a terrible thing to waste. Next question comes from Bob Capel in Texas. Uh, Bob asks, what is the most important thing for a 16-year-old to do this summer vacation to keep moving forward and be prepared? So uh, that's a great question and one which when I speak to high school students, uh, I, I try and address off the bat. The single most important thing for you know, a high school student, a college student, even for anyone listening here, but in particular for a high school student, is understanding what his or her passion is. You know, I'm, I consider myself lucky and uh, uh, you may as well. Uh, that I got my passion in life, my mission and my purpose in life when I was a child. It happened when I was about eight or nine. It was Apollo. It was Star Trek. It was a, a com complete love affair with opening the space frontier. And that passion drove me to want to learn, drove me to do research on my own, drove me to build rockets, build rocket engines, blow things up, all kinds of, you know, crazy stuff. But it was, it drove me. Um, it wasn't something that my parents made me do, my teachers made me do. I did it because I wanted to. And so when I'm in the classroom, in fact, just a couple of days ago, I was at Singularity University. We have 80 graduate students. And those graduate students come from uh, 40 countries around the world, uh, top you know, 5,000 applicants for 80 spots. And I asked the question of them, how many of you know your mission in life, know what your purpose is, know why you're on this planet, are driven by something big that excites you every morning? And only about a third of them raised their hands, which was kind of surprising to me. And I said to them, listen, the, for the other two-thirds, your goal this summer is to find your passion, to figure out what it is or at least what you think it might be and explore that. You know, so it goes double or triple for a high school student because if you know your passion at that age, you can start to really use that to drive where you go to college, what you learn in college, what you do as a, in building companies. So for this summer, I mean, I would ask uh, if that's your son or daughter or your cousin or whatever it might be, uh, the question, do you know what you're passionate about? Uh, now, where might one identify their passions? Uh, I have two tests that I use. One is what did you want to do when you were a kid, right? Before your mom or your dad or your teachers told you what you were supposed to do, what was what was exciting for you? For me, again, it was space. It was really simple. 
Um, so make a list of those things. The second is if I gave you a billion dollars and said, can't spend it yourself, but I want you to spend it to make the world a better place, where would you spend that money? What would you try and do with that money? So if you ask that 16-year-old to make a list of what they think their passions might be and then spend a week, you know, come up with the top five or six and then spend a week investigating each of those and narrow it down to a top two or three, that would be an amazing summer well spent. All right, next question comes from Mike in Santa Cruz, California. And Mike asked the question, whenever the question of ending hunger in Africa arises, someone always says, quote, there's no sufficient distribution system. And the question is, why couldn't we just uh, feed African countries with a mere billion dollars using food and a small army of powerful delivery drones? So, I mean, Mike, I think, uh, yes, distribution is one part of it. But it's also reinventing how we produce food, where we produce food, um, and how food is delivered. You know, if you think about what is food, I mean, what is food? Food is a mechanism for converting sunlight, which is energy, into useful energy our cells of our body can consume. Like if we were photosynthetic, photosynthetic organisms, we just like, convert the sunlight directly into energy in our bodies. But that's not what happens, right? The sunlight uh, hits the trees or the grass. The trees grow oranges. The oranges uh, have fructose and various hydrocarbons. Uh, the grass is ate by cows that build muscle tissue or produce milk. And ultimately, we consume the, the oranges or the milk or the cows and we live by that conversion process. So the question really is, how could we actually produce that food product in a much more efficient way. And what I'm interested in is the impact of technology. Now, drones are one mechanism, but I think that we can now grow food in much more efficient ways in a much more uh, decentralized fashion. Because today what happens is uh, if we're living in New York, for example, actually you're from, uh, from Santa Cruz. So if you're living in Santa Cruz and you have a dinner at a nice restaurant, your meal travels an average of 1,600 miles, right? Your wine may come from France. Your beef may come from Brazil or Argentina. Your corn may come from uh, – I don't know. Where's corn come from? Uh, Middle America. Uh, and ultimately, it ends up on your dinner plate. But imagine a future in which uh, in Santa Cruz or LA or New York – I'll get to Africa in a second – the food is actually produced in what are called urban or vertical farms – where it's built uh, a farm that's a multi-story, maybe you know, 30, 40 stories high, but it is operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week with artificial light at the perfect frequency, uh, providing humidity and rain at the perfect pH, uh, growing plants in a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week growth cycle. Uh, and that is part of a perhaps a protein-based fish system uh, and you can imagine these sort of vertical farms that are in cities and towns around the world where the distribution is, you know, not 1,600 miles but 10 miles. Uh, so the food is always locally uh, grown. Uh, the other side of the equation is work being done by various companies. One of them is Modern Meadows, which came out of Singularity University, which it turns out that a cow is like the most efficient way to generate meat. Um, think about it. Again, the sun grows the, uh, you know, the food stock, the grass, the cow eats it uh, over this long period of time. 
uh, it uh, you basically slaughter the cow, which is a you know if you've ever seen a slaughterhouse, not a pretty sight. And most of the cow is thrown away, and you basically use the meat of the cow. Imagine instead if you could take some cells from the cow and grow those cells at scale in culture and actually have those cells generate the perfect proteins with the right vitamins and grown at scale. We could produce various meat products that are a thousand times more efficiently grown from an energy standpoint and have exactly the proteins and exactly the vitamins and have the flavors and tastes that are perfect. Um, and if you, you know, people say, my God, that's disgusting. Listen, go visit a slaughterhouse and you tell me what's disgusting. But I think it's about reinventing how we generate food. The distribution system, sure. Drones, absolutely. But I think it's more about regenerating it a hundred times more efficiently, uh, where we have an overabundance of food and food becomes much more nutritious. So the next question comes from uh, Jeremiah in Chicago, and Jeremiah asks, have you considered crowdfunding the XPRIZE? I would love to regularly contribute on a micro level, 100 bucks or 1000 bucks a year. So Jeremiah, uh, absolutely we have. In fact, we ran a crowdfunding campaign for part of our global learning XPRIZE, and it's something I'm passionate about and want to experiment with. And uh, one of the areas I would commend you to look at is a spin-out from XPRIZE called HeroX. Uh, H-E-R-O-X, HeroX dot com. And HeroX is a platform that XPRIZE has spun out where what we've learned and how to design XPRIZES, run XPRIZES, uh, judge XPRIZES is actually uh, created on a platform where you can go and see right now uh, dozens, soon hundreds of prizes out there that you can fund. Um, you can fund part of the purse. Uh, you can uh, register as a team to compete, uh, and you can be part of that ecosystem. So, you know, part of my my goal is the whole notion to change the conversation that we go from complaining about problems to fixing problems. And Jeremiah, I am grateful for your support. Uh, I I think you'll start to see much more crowd involvement in the X Prize Foundation in helping us design our prizes, choose which prizes we launch, and uh, and launch and fund our prizes never before in the interim please go check out hero x get involved it's an amazing platform it's uh it's a chance in my mind to take this concept of incentive prizes globally to scale and change our culture of complaining to a to a culture of solving our next question comes from spiro in montreal and spiro asked the question will technology increase unemployment and will robots replace many of the, glue, uh, the blue-collar workers as well as white-collar worker jobs uh, in the media, as the media is lately reporting? Or is that a myth? So Spiro, uh, the answer is, is yes, but. Uh, so yes, a lot of today's blue-collar and even white-collar jobs will be replaced by AI and robots. The Statistic from the Martin School at Oxford says that 48% of today's fortune, uh, 48% of today's jobs in the United States uh, will be replaced in the next 20 years. But here's the catch. Those jobs uh, will be replaced by AI and robots, but new jobs will be created uh, for those people who lost their jobs. And to give you some examples here, 150 years ago in the mid-1800s, Two-thirds of Americans were farmers. We were all farmers. You know, 
you know, two-thirds of your friends would have made their living working on a farm in some place. Today, it's under 2%, right? And those farmers displaced by automation, uh, tractors and, um, and the like, uh, got new jobs. Uh, they got jobs as Wall Street, uh, you know, investment bankers or accountants or website designers or people who on Second Life designed, uh, virtual clothing. I mean, the challenge is that we don't realize, we recognize the jobs today that will be lost, but we can't conceive of the jobs that are going to be created that don't yet exist. Uh, I'll add a couple of points here. The stat from a recent uh, poll that was taken uh, says that 70% of Americans hate their jobs. And I know the stats for the America, uh, the US, I, I realize you're from Montreal, uh, but 70% of Americans hate their jobs you know they don't like stocking uh, stacking boxes or cleaning toilets or taking money to toll booth um that's something they do to put money and food on their table and get insurance uh, but imagine instead if a robot or an ai could take that job but you could collaborate with a robot or collaborate with an ai to take on something that really inspires you instead of you know uh, stacking boxes at the local uh, uh the local store you could become uh, someone who worked as a healthcare worker in the hospital. Uh, and you did that by virtue of collaboration with artificial intelligence. So I think we're going to be creating a lot of jobs. I think we're going to be changing the meaning of work uh, uh, from something that you do because you have to, to you do something you love, uh, empowered by technology that helps you do that. So, for example, if you're a trucker, let the robot drive the truck and instead maybe you should be doing sales and marketing and or maybe you should be painting or maybe you should be, you know, reading uh, books out loud to your elderly parent. I don't know, but uh, do the things that you love to do uh, and let uh, <clears throat> let automation do the stuff that's the scut work that you hate. The next question comes from uh, Biggie uh, in uh, Medellin. So uh, Biggie asked the question, will Google, Facebook, or Elon Musk win the race to providing global internet? Will the FCC allow it? So uh, I think that uh, there is a race and uh, we're going to see four players that are four principal players right now. There's Facebook with internet.org. Uh, there is Google with a couple different solutions, principally Google Loon. Uh, there is uh, 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 Greg Weiler in partnership with Paul Jacobs and Richard Branson for OneWeb, which is a satellite solution, and there's Elon Musk with his multi-thousandth satellite solution. Uh, I think that all four are going to make an attempt. <clears throat> My guess is there will be two of those will deploy. There'll probably be a satellite solution and an atmospheric solution. Uh, when I say atmospheric solution, I mean drones or balloons. Uh, and the FCC, of course, will allow it because. Um, the FCC only governs U.S., and uh, I think it's going to be uh, a lot of these different solutions are working with local uh, telecom authorities, PTTs, where they're local service providers. Uh, there is opportunity for global spectrum. I know that Greg Weiler at OneWeb uh, has harmonized global spectrum to, uh, to provide a solution. Others might go with unlicensed spectrum or laser. Uh, but I think it's a giant market. Uh, it's one of the most important things. We effectively are building the last mile of this global, uh, you know, nervous system of planet Earth. 
And one of the biggest impacts for a global economy is going to be 5 billion new mines coming online over the next five years. So I'm excited to see this deploy. Uh, I think it's a huge business opportunity and one that's uh, just really exciting. And the next question comes from Salty T in New Jersey. Uh, Salty asked the question, how will human longevity differentiate itself from other biotechs? So HLI, Human Longevity Inc., uh, is actually providing services to the biotech pharmas. Uh, we have built the largest genome sequencing facility in the world. Uh, we have more of the Illumina 10X machines, X10 machines, and the PacBio machines than anyone. But besides just the brute force, large-scale sequencing of human genomes, our goal is 100,000 a year by the end of this year, a million a year by 2020. So we have millions of genomes in our database much more important than that is going to be the data mining of that. So we're going to distinguish ourselves by being a data-driven company that is mining the most valuable data set in the, in the known universe uh, and understanding what these integrated health records, right? We're integrating uh, the 3.2 billion letters from your mother, from your father, the sequencing of your microbiome, your health records, your uh, your uh, MRI, your digital imaging of your body, all of this stuff is going in and being machine data mined to extract knowledge and information, to understand what makes you tick. What's the, what's the sort of deck of cards that you as an individual were dealt and how does it compare to the public at large? And wow, look, you have this gene sequence that this same person has and this protects you from heart disease, protects you from cancer. This is going to allow you to live to well over 100. So you know, it's going to change healthcare. So how HLI is different is we're largest scale genome sequencing facility in the world, massive data mining capability. Franz Ock, who runs our machine learning team out of Mountain View, California, uh, was the guy who built Google Translate for over 10 years. Uh, the third way is that the work we're doing right now with stem cells under the uh, leadership of Bob Hariri. Uh, we are really becoming a pioneer in how do we use stem cells to rejuvenate your regenerative engine of your body. Uh, the next question comes from uh, Jeppe uh, Rasmussen. And uh, Jeppe asks, if you were 20 and had no experience whatsoever, what would you do to get into Singularity University and after that create a change in the world? So it's a great question. Um, I think the first thing I would do, Jeppe, is I would do something. Um, and then I would do something bigger and then something bigger. Uh, I wouldn't expect to get into SU at age 20 not having done anything yet. Uh, first of all, I'm going to say that part of SU's plans is going to be to take its content and curriculum and make it available online for everybody. So you'll get the benefit of that. But I definitely uh, hope that you continue to aspire to be part of uh, Singularity University because I think being there is an extraordinary experience. Uh, but it's taking one step at a time. So the best predictor – and I'm, I serve as part of the admissions team. The best predictor for a person's future success is what they've done historically. And everybody typically starts with zero. And so for me, uh, my first, my first uh, effort was uh, really you know, getting a petition going to support space when I was a freshman in college. And then I started 
uh, a space organization called SEDS. And then I started my next organization, my next organization. And so, you know, it's getting people who know you and love you and believe in you. Maybe it's your mom, your dad, your cousins, uh, teachers, whoever it might be, to back some small venture where you call your shot and you say, I'm going to achieve this goal. Would you support me? And it should be a small first goal and then achieve that goal. And once you've achieved that goal, set your next goal. And then achieve that goal. And when the people watch you achieve that, they'll be willing to back you for your next one. And so you can't expect to go from zero to a billion uh, in one step. But you can go from one to two, two to four, four to eight, and 30 steps later be at a billion. So I think the most important thing is to begin uh, and call your first shot. Have your friends watch you pull it off, something that you can achieve, and then build on top of that a step at a time. And, you know, a few doublings later, you'll be amazed where you end up. 